This is Speaking of Stories, conversations between authors. In today's episode, Jennifer Clement from Mexico is the president of Penn International, known for her novel Prayers for the Stolen, that involved over 10 years of research on the stealing of young girls in Mexico. In these parts of Mexico, being beautiful is a curse. The mothers make them ugly, so they would paint their teeth with a black marker, cut their hair very short. They would do everything to make the girls not to be noticed. And Katarina Wenstam from Sweden. The criminal reporter who decided to become a full-time author made her debut in 2002 with the non-fiction The Girl and the Guilt, a reportage on how rape victims are treated by Swedish society and legal system. For me, one of the most important things about that book, that the girls that are in the book, I think that I maybe I gave them sort of a voice. This is Speaking of Stories, with me, Jennifer Clement. And me, Katarina Wenstam. Chapter 1 fighting for freedom of expression through writing. So I will start out with with saying to Jennifer Clement, welcome to Sweden. Ah, thank you. It's so wonderful to be here. It's my third time in Sweden and I'm here for such beautiful weather. Yes, it is. It's wonderful. It's wonderful to have you here, and I'm so glad to to finally be able to to meet you. Can you tell for the Swedish audience about your background and Yeah, um, I live in Mexico, and I was raised in Mexico, and uh, I uh, also went to university in the United States. I went to New York University, and that is why the the book that's about to come out right now in Bonniers is is about that time. It's actually a memoir about my time in New York, but I've lived my whole life mostly in Mexico. And you are now the president of Penn International and actually the first woman to be elected to the office in almost 100 years. Can you tell me about uh, what you're going to do at Penn? Well, I should say, because I think it's it's important to say it, because it's I'm so honored, it was Swedish Penn that nominated me to be president of Penn International. Uh, so, so it's doubly special to be here. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I have plans to change the charter of Penn International because the charter has um, sort of two sides to it. One side is the defense of freedom of expression, and the other side is that members of Penn will do everything that they can to promote goodwill and understanding among people. So in that document it says, we will do everything to combat hatreds of class, race, and nationality. And what I'm hoping to change there is to include uh, hatred of gender, uh, sexual orientation, sexual identity, and religion. My first thought was, why isn't it already in there? Well, I've been thinking that for 23 years. <laughs> I've been a member for 23 years, and I've wondered why at least gender is not there. The way that Penn will approach all of this is the idea that violence against women is censorship. Yes, and, it is. And it's I a democratic it problem. Mm-hmm. It's, and I think that that it's also, if you're a woman and you're writing and you go public, you always know that this can go into hatred against your gender. Do you feel that's in the same way? Yes, I think it's a, an important part of the argument within the idea of uh, 
violence. I mean, I think that is a kind of violence. Yes, I know so many young women, especially that sort of censor themselves in what they are writing on on social media or in the newspaper because of they that they know that if they write in special topics, they will get the the rape threats and they will get the hatred and so they keep quiet instead. Yeah, the self censorship. It's terrible. It's censorship occurs in many ways, and and this is self-censorship because you know the wave of violence against you that will come. So it is it is a way of keeping you quiet and keeping you silent. I know that your father was a human rights activist. Can you tell me about him and how he has influenced you in your work? Well, my father uh, worked in the civil rights movement. Um, so when the Kennedys came to Mexico, the people that received them were my parents. And I would say that he he raised his children with a really strong sense of of need needing to serve that you're you're in the world to make it a better place as much as you can. So he influenced me in that. Have you always known what you wanted to do with your with your writing and and so well, on? I've I've always written, so I've always known that I would be a writer. But I didn't. I obviously I didn't know what I would write. But yeah, I've always written. How did it start out to to sort of make it more professional? That's an interesting question. I guess I I had always sort of written, so I never really thought it was something that you would go and do because it was something that I already did. So I think it was after the first few publications and people responding to what I was writing that I realized that I wanted to take it very seriously. And I'm so glad to be able to meet you because your first book, uh, it's called uh, Bön för de stulna in Swedish, uh, Pray for the, the Stolen in English, right? Yes, yes, Prayers for the Stolen. Yes, yeah. and it was just breathtaking and it was so, it was dark, but it was at the same time light. It was same time, I even laughed sometimes in, the, in when I read it, even though I cried most of the time. <laughs> I also had some some... It was so positive in the same way. Do you know what I mean with that? That it's yeah, it's hopeful in some way, even though it's so dark and it's so hard. Well, the publicists of the book had a long, hard time trying to explain to the reading public what they would be reading. But as an as a writer, I'm always looking for how the divine and the profane coexist. And actually, um, Dickens used to write tragedy and comedy combined. And I love what he used to call it. He used to say, "I write streaky bacon," and it's this thing where life is like that. We're full of comedy and tragedy at the same time. It coexists. And one of the things that got me hardest with that book is that I mean, we live in a society where we always sort of uh, premiere the the beauty, beautiful ones, but you show that the beauty can be a curse. Can you can you tell me about that more? Well, the thing is, in these parts of Mexico, uh, being beautiful is a curse. In fact, there's a line in the book that says the best thing you could be in Mexico is an ugly girl because you don't want to be stolen, you don't want to be raped, you don't want to attract any attention. And there's an expression in Spanish which is walk in the shade. In other words, don't be seen. And it goes back to what we were talking about a little while ago about um, the danger of either spoken visibility or visual visibility and to that i also think that it sort of blames the girls for being beautiful the ones that are beautiful are sort of told that they can well they, they are the ones to blame for being stolen or being raped yeah in fact the mothers make them ugly so they would paint their teeth with a black marker 
or cut their hair very short. They would do everything to make the girls not to be noticed. I, w- I want to talk yes. a little bit about you. Yes. <laughs> uh, first of all, I do have to say that I haven't read your books, and I'm really sorry that they're not in English because I think they should be. I hope that they will be. Um, I think uh, anything to do with the law interests me very much, and uh, so I hope that very soon we can have another conversation where I can ha- will have read your books. But in the meantime. Tell me a little bit about your background. Yes, uh, I started out as a journalist. Uh, I worked as a crime reporter for 10 years at the Swedish television. And, uh, well, quite early on, I, I started to focus on the trials about rape, about domestic violence, and the things that I sort of... Well, it was both because I, as a woman, could identify with the victims, but also because there were basically basically only male male crime reporters and they well in that days it was like 15 20 years ago they really didn't give a damn about these trials they wanted to go on the the narcos things the drug deals the the big gang things and uh, the crime against women uh, the violence against women they it wasn't that big of an issue for them and then i started to to realize that it was hard for me since i worked on the swedish television it's very important to never show your your opinion to never take stand to never never to, to be very objective and on these trials it was very hard for me because I, I went so angry because I saw all these things below the surface about the blaming of the girl blaming of the victim that even though sometimes the guys were convicted she was the one that got her life destroyed even afterwards she had to move she had to change school she had to change her name because everyone thought of her as the whore, the slut, the one who got herself raped rather than focusing on the guys and the, the crime they committed. And that made me write my first book that was a f- non-fiction book. Uh, it's called The Girl and the Guilt. And um, after that, I've also been writing uh, novels and well, was with the same theme, but uh, with a crime novel, you seem to... It's, it's easier to sort of find another audience, a broader audience and... So, as I sometimes say, an audience that don't really know that they are interested in these topics. Uh, one guy even wrote to me once and said, I thought I bought just an ordinary crime novel and now I got this insight into trafficking and he was really upset about it because he didn't know about these things and I don't think that I would have reached out to that guy or some of the other readers without the the fact that I'm going into the, the crime novels instead. Well, in Penn, we're very conscious of the power of literature, and what you're talking about is the power of literature. And in terms of laws, we're also very interested to see how, and I'm personally very interested to see how a novel can change laws. For example, if we look in history, the novels of Jane Austen and Charlotte Bronte changed property laws for women or uh, Oliver Twist of Dickens changed child labor laws or Zola's books in France changed also labor laws for the minors, etc. Um, so I'm not surprised that that coming from you, this kind of book um, would have that kind of power. I'm wondering, is there one particular case that you covered that really stands out in your mind? Yes, it was one case that got me 
to to decide that I wanted to write, not just make the TV reporters about it. And it was uh, a group rape. Uh, a girl that was she was going home on the subway and she was really drunk and there was a couple of guys falling her from the subway and dragging her into a garage where they raped her and she was so drunk that she wasn't she wasn't able to stand for herself but she got the questions like did she run away did she try to run away did she try to scream even though the guy said she was so drunk drunk she couldn't speak or or, or talk or even walk she had to uh, she had questions about what did she wear uh, how did she scream did she try to scream why didn't she scream and that case i think got me to see that even though Everybody knew what happened to her. It was like in a couple of days or in a couple of weeks, everything tended to be about her and not about her, them. About what kind of girl did, was she? There was rumors on the school that she was a slut, that she had been sleeping around. And even grown-ups were talking about she's that kind of girl. And then I had been doing reportages about the several rape cases before that. But I think that was the moment when I realized this is the key. This is what I always find in these gang rape trials, that it tends to, the focus changes from the the guys to the girl, to her behavior, behavior, what did she do? What did she do wrong instead of focusing on their wrong behavior? And how was that received when you started to expose this, making the victim the victim again and again and again? I think that even though people sort of knew that this was a problem. Once the book came, it was this is 14 years ago, it was, it was a huge debate uh, in Sweden. And since then, we have had also a change in the law because before that, it, it wasn't even called rape in the law when the girl was drunk on her own blame, to say, uh, only if she had been drugged. But if she had been drinking herself, it wasn't called rape, but now it is. So... That I think that this shows in many ways that the literature has a way of, of starting a debate, sort of taking the question into another level and, and um, also giving victims sort of a, a way of, of making their voice heard. I think that's, that's one of the, for me, one of the most important things about that book, that the girls that are in the book. I sort of, I think that I maybe I gave them sort of a voice. And tell me a little about this new book, which has the most incredible title, The Girl and the Shame. Uh, how did you come to write that? What was the incident that sparked your Well, I think that the, inc- the incident that sparked that goes back 29 years, because I was one of these girls. And I think that uh, I didn't realize then that I would end up where I am now. But I think that I've been writing, I, I, have, I have been wanting to write this book since then, even though I didn't know it then. But since I've been working with these questions all these years, I can see that the reason that I also identify with the girls in the rape cases, for example, is because I can see that I was one of the girls that they called slut. And if I would have been raped, they wouldn't have believed me either. Uh, and I wanted to sort of write a book about the slut shaming, about the rumors, about the... Well, we have sort of a humiliation culture right now, especially on, on Internet, that is... Well, it's like in the Middle Ages, 
when you had the the pole on the on the square in the town where women who had been confessed for adultery you put them there or they had to wear the scarlet a for adultery or here in Stockholm we actually had something called the stones of the city two really heavy stones that they put around the neck of a, of a woman if she had been been convicted for adultery and she had to walk around in the streets of Stockholm uh, and then led out of the city uh, and I've tried these stones they are they, they were so heavy that I could walk like 10 meters and then I simply fell down because they were so heavy and I mean we don't have that kind of punishment today but we have another kind of punishment we have the shame punishment still but in another way chapter two to carry the stones of the city I'd love to hear a little bit more about these stones. Where are the stones? Are they in a museum? Yes. How were you able to put them on? I'm yeah. fascinated by the stones. Yes, I mean they they were they are terrible. The one thing that's really terrible they are, they are in the uh, in a museum here in Stockholm, the Middle Age Museum. Uh, and one of the most terrible things about them is that they are so well used. <gasps> they yes. They're worn. Yes, they are worn. Uh, and they are uh, big round with holes for the breasts. So it's very, it's for the women. It's only for the women. Yes, with a chain around the neck and two stones to, to cover the, the breasts with sort of holes in the stones for the breasts. And um, the intendant of the, on the museum, museum said it's like she was convicted to wear the whole shame of the city on her shoulders. It's literally the shame of the city on her shoulders. And um, we also had in the agricultural society in Sweden, we had something called the whore hut. You had to wear uh, sort of a small hat in red to if you were uh, had been having sex uh, out of the marriage or uh, getting pregnant with a man you weren't married to. So it was really a lot about you could that you could you have to see the shame. The shame has to be public. You also had sometimes that you could you had to stitch a red arm on your dress and the the red arm that was out in the that you can see in the church on the side where you sat in the church it had to be on this arm so everybody could see it that's the whore that's the girl with the so red it is, sleeve it's the public shaming yes. and it's what we're seeing now in yes. social media yes it is it's like a shame poll on the on the square but the square is instead facebook or or instagram or we know, you and I both know, lots of really wonderful men. Um, why do you think it is that even these wonderful men that we know and that we love um, do not speak out yeah. about this behavior by other men? Yes, it's a, it's a great disappointment in life, isn't it, that they are so quiet sometimes. Uh, when I do lectures, it's like 80% women and 20 men, if it's a good day. It's both a disappointment and I think that I also think that they don't know what they, what they miss. And I think that they don't understand that when we are blaming a girl for being raped because of what she's wearing, for example... It's like guys don't understand that this is also the prejudices about them. Like they couldn't behave if they see a girl with a short skirt or that they couldn't behave if she was drunk. They sort of have to go after her. And I mean, since we both know good men, they don't look into the girls that way. But why are they so quiet? It's like they 
finally speak out sometimes when their daughters go into the teenagers. And it's like, no, 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 this is not about your girl, girl, your daughter going into her teenagers. It, this is about the sons. This is about the, the sons going into their teenagers. Yeah, for example, one thing that has always I've always asked myself in Mexico, obviously, um, because of the things that I write, I'm in contact with a lot of the world of domestic violence. And I've always thought, you know, why are women put in a shelter with their children? They're taken out of their house, they're taken out of their school, and they're hidden. Why aren't the men put in a shelter? It's, you know, it's like re-victimizing the women again by putting them in a shelter when the people that I think should be in the shelter are the men. I believe deeply that silence is complicity. And so to me it's very disturbing that the good men... That we that that we care about, do not speak out and create a culture among men where it's unacceptable, where a young man or a middle-aged man doesn't matter the age would feel ashamed to behave in this way, um, because the men around him would disapprove. It should have to be like it's the cool thing is to be a good guy. I mean, if you if you find a girl in a party and she has passed out because she has been drinking too much, some guys know that they what they should do then is call her parents or help her to throw up or put a blanket over her help her to feel better not to go after your bodies and close the door and go assaulting her but when we have the trials or just walk away yeah. i think in a lot of yeah, cases keep the other quiet. men yes. keep quiet they know walk what away. happens in that in that room but they walk away they they don't get involved no mm-hmm. and when we have the trials about these cases because we do in men so many times it's like we still talk about it like it's a normal male behavior when it should be the abnormal behavior you don't act like that you should not act like that to a girl who has passed passed out you should help her you went through 10 years of research research on the stealing of young girls in mexico in your book praise for the stolen and this was a book that touched me so much Can you tell me, how did it all start with this book? Yeah, uh, I touched a little bit on it before, I think. Uh, Basically, I was very interested in seeing uh, how the violence was affecting women because so much of what we call now narco literature, because it's actually a genre now, is is written by men. It's completely, uh, you know, the characters, the important characters are men. And the women, almost always, there's there's a prostitute, they're the girls that work in a table dancing club, and there's the mother, you know, maybe appearing every now and again. But they, all these women were sort of paper dolls. They weren't developed as characters in any way. And so I knew I wanted to write about that, but I didn't know which women. What, so I, I started out about three years interviewing the women of drug traffickers who were in hiding. And uh, so what was very important about that research was that when when I did actually write the book I wrote, thanks to that work, I knew exactly where these girls were going and to what what the ranches were like and the places were like. So it, it ended up being an important part of the research. But the book... I knew the book I was going to write when I was with a woman whose actual mother had been sold to a man for two goats, if you can imagine that. And she t- I asked her, you know, what's going on with the, with the women in, in the state of Guerrero, which is the most violent state in Mexico and one of the most violent places in the world. 
And she said, oh, I just hate to tell you, but, you know, our little girls are being stolen and, and trafficked and taken into the sex trafficking. And then she said to me, and you know what we do is, is we dig holes in the fields, and if we see these big uh, SUV trucks coming looking for girls, we hide them in the holes. And that's when I knew that was going to be my book because, first of all, I couldn't sleep for three nights because the image in my mind was on one hand like a rabbit warren and these little girls like rabbits hiding with their little hearts beating. And the other image I had was of a living grave that they were being buried alive and, and how scared they must feel to be put in the ground like that. That's when I knew that the book would be about the most vulnerable people in the country. Yes, and the most violent place to, to be, just yeah. for being a woman or mm -hmm. for, for being a girl. Yes. Chapter 3. Being compared to Truman Capote and holding lectures to the Swedish Police Academy. I read uh, in re reviews of your books that your writing has been compared to Truman Capote with the storytelling, with undertones of journalism, for example, in, in The Guardian. Uh, what do you think of this comparison? Well, first of all, it's a huge honor because I'm a great admirer of Truman Capote. But actually, it's even better than that because I don't know if in Sweden you have something equivalent to the what we call the VITA statistics. I hope to implement this in all the pen centers in the world. It's a group of women who started to keep a score of how many books by women are reviewed, um, and it's shocking. I mean, and especially in the publications that further your career as a writer, things like, you know, the Times Literary Supplement. I mean, many more books by men are reviewed than books by women. Then, as the studies got deeper, they noticed that almost invariably work were books written by women were reviewed by women, that men do not want to review a book by a woman because it's like a lower status review. And also, the other thing that they've noticed is that almost invariably a woman's book is compared to another book by a woman. Very rarely will a woman's writing be compared to a man's writing. So to be even compared to a man <laughs> is highly unusual. Very, very yeah, unusual. I recognize all these things that you are saying. Yeah. Um, and I'm hoping in my third year as president of Penn to implement this in all the centers because I know in Mexico the minute, because you can't argue with statistics, you can't argue with math. And so when you look at these pie graphs of how many books by women are reviewed and how many books by men, I mean... There's no argument. It's right there. So I think that that will be wonderful for Penn to, to implement this. And we're doing this um, enormous gender review within Penn, thanks to a grant by SIDA from Sweden. And uh, I hope that these, this will you know, create dialogue and make a difference. Now, I have to say that for Prayers for the Stolen, I have broken the, the, the norm. I mean, almost... All my reviews were by men. I was compared a lot to the writing of men. It was interesting. You are here now in Sweden since you are uh, with Penn and since you are also going to the book fair. And you have a new book uh, that is translated into Swedish. It's called Baskiat's Enka. In Swedish, it's uh, Widow Baskiat in, in English. Uh, can you tell me about, about this new book? Sure. I mean, this book is not a novel. It's a memoir. And it's about the time that I went, left Mexico and I went to New York. And in fact, um, Patti Smith, 
who's a little older than I am, her book is called Just Kids. I would say the little generation after her, her that came to New York, I always think of us as runaways because we all were running away. I was running away from Mexico. Suzanne, who's the widow, was running away from Canada. Madonna was running away from Michigan. Keith Haring was running away from Ohio, etc. Even Andy Warhol was running away from Pittsburgh. Which so, time? Which time is this? So I got to New York in 1978. So it basically, it's it's ten years. It's from 1978 to 1988, and in that time, this group of people became extremely famous, some of them. Madonna, obviously, Jean-Michel, too, Basquiat. He was uh, one of the very few black painters to become very famous, and now he's broken every record for a contemporary artist. He just sold a painting for $35 million. But he died of a heroin overdose when he was 27 years old. So it's a portrait of New York at that time, the music, the scene, everything that was going on. It's also a love story. It's the, the love story between Suzanne and, and Jean-Michel. And it's also my story because it's my New York. And, and in what ways was diff- uh, New York in the late 70s and the, in the 80s different from the New York of today? Well, it was very different. For one, it was an extremely dangerous city. And this was before there was this mayor that created the Big Apple campaign that hadn't even existed yet. So, I mean, I remember I worked as a waitress. I used to have to hide my tips, you know, in my socks, in my sleeve, in my hair, just because you knew you would get held up and you didn't want to lose all your money. So uh, it was a very dangerous city, but it was affordable. It's not like it is now. And it was the beginning of, you know, graffiti art and the punk rock movement. A lot of people don't realize that Actually, disco and punk rock were very sort of in, entwined. It wasn't so, as separate as people think. And hip-hop started. And so it was a very exciting time for me. And I talk about it in the book also. Uh, it all sort of ended with AIDS. And so it was like this great exuberant moment. Of course, the gay rights movement had never been so open and so accepting and suddenly came AIDS and it all ended. What do you so, nowadays in in when you go to New York what do you most what do you miss the most from those days? Well, I think what what is lost today is uh this excitement of possibility because now to live in New York you really have to have money. When I lived there we were all so poor, we were all just scraping to try and survive. So that element is gone. I mean, you you can't be Uh, uh, an artist who's trying to find your way and your voice in New York today because you can't afford it. So it's funny. So many people say to me, so so you lived in New York when it was really dangerous and everybody wanted to live there. And now you you're back in Mexico. That's really dangerous. And everybody wants to live there. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you love about Mexico? Oh, there's so much that I love about Mexico. But you, go, you grew up there, right? Yeah, I've lived there my whole life, except for this these years in New York when I went to NYU and then stayed on some years. Yeah, well, Mexico is is an incredible place for art in general. I mean, great painters, great musicians, great writers. I find it very vibrant, uh, but it's also home, so I don't actually see it as an outsider. I see it as an insider. And what part of Mexico do you live in the south side of Mexico City. 
But going back to, to Widow Basquiat, uh, the book uh, actually came out in New York two days before 9-11. And as everything around that time sort of disappeared. So this book was actually written before Prayers for the Stolen. Oh, it was. But it never really had a life. It was a super cult book. I mean, people would Xerox it. People would write me and say, please, 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 can I have a copy? And so now it's having this incredible new life and also combined with the fact that Jean-Michel Basquiat is now a giant. You know, Jay-Z sings about him. You know, Beyonce has his, paint, his paintings on her walls and Kanye West refers to him in his rap songs. And so it's sort of a perfect moment but also many things have not changed because uh, Widow Basquiat talks a lot about racism and about police brutality. It's yeah. something so present and about heroin addiction. And right now, you know, they're having more people overdose from heroin in the United States than in the history of the country. The consumption of heroin to the United States from Mexico is huge. And in fact, I don't know if you heard about all these students that were killed. Yeah. Uh, in Ayotzinapa, mm -hmm. those the, all that had to do with heroin. And if you read Prayers for the Stolen, it's all that part of Mexico where the poppies are grown, where the state-of-the-art heroin labs are. So as long as there's this tremendous consumption of heroin in the United States, and then the other thing, and this is my new novel, actually, um, about guns coming into Mexico. My new book is all about guns and gun violence. And why are you into that, into the gun violence, into... Because you know what I realize about myself, and it takes a while to know who you are, and it has to do with all the books and everything I write, even Widow Basquiat, because Widow Basquiat is about unprotected people and vulnerable people. I realize about myself is that my indignation is always greater than my fear. And gun violence, it, I, I, it gives me tremendous indignation. The amount of money that is being made on all these innocent people getting killed. And the, and in Mexico, 40, if, if the guns did not come to Mexico, 43% of gun dealers in the United States would be out of business. You know, nobody talks about the amount of guns, legal and illegal guns, that go to Mexico. In the States, you talk, they talk about, well, Trump talks a lot about what's coming from Mexico to the States, but not about the bad things that come from the states to Mexico. Well, all these unethical, amoral gun dealers are very happy that all the guns, that's a huge business for them. And they're legal, they're illegal, they're straw guns. So this is what my new book is about. And in fact, I've written a lot about guns. I have essay, journalistic pieces that I wrote. Do you, uh, the do you, first thing I wrote about guns was, I think, in 2009. And I've been to the NRA headquarters, National Rifle Association headquarters twice, and to the museum, um, because I want to understand it. But as you can imagine, I've written it with poetry. I mean, for me as a writer, also as, as a literary challenge, to write about guns with poetry is a big literary challenge. Do you practice shooting yourself? I have shot, yes, of course. Yeah. How do you how do you feel about it? Because I've been doing shooting myself t with, together with policemen, for example, when when I'm doing doing journalistic things with them. And what what do you think about having a weapon in your hand and, and to well, shoot? I understand. It's a powerful feeling. It's a very powerful feeling. And you can see how I always say 
thank God I don't have a gun because I would have killed some people once or twice or three times by now. <laughs> <laughs> because it's so easy, yes. yes. But back to you, now that you bring up the yeah. policeman. Tell me a little about, about these talks that you're giving where, where you go speak to students, that you've gone to police forces and, and spoken to, 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 to the police. Can you talk a little bit about yes, that? Yes, it's been interesting since the, the first book that I wrote, The, the Girl and the Guilt, it's, been, it's 14 years since that uh, came out first. And it's been a development. When, when it first came out, I talked a lot in, in women's clubs and in schools and libraries and for a very female public. And then it sort of changed into to doing lectures for, for example, for the uh, police academy. And that was so different because, I mean, when I went to like a women's club, everybody started nodding all the time because they knew exactly what I was talking about. And when I came to the police academy, I met a lot of guys sitting with their arms crossed backwards, like, yeah, they were harder to convince. But in some way, it was just... It was a very great feeling to be able to see that, well, that guy, I reached that guy. I can see that in the look in his face when I'm talking, that now he understands what I'm talking about. And I always tend to think that even if it's just one or two person in every lecture that I reach out to in the in the deep of their mind, I mean, that's enough because it's one one at a time. Have you ever had a surprising answer, something that really you didn't expect to hear or that lives inside of you, some, something that was said? One policeman just one time told me that they could, in their district, see the effect of my book that year after it came, that they could see that more women came to, to tell the police what happened to them because for the first time the girls felt that this thing actually is rape. So that really touched me, that, that we reached out in that way. So, Katarina, um, we only have a few minutes left, so please tell me what are your future plans? Do you have any upcoming projects? Yes, yes. my next project will be a novel, a crime novel, when I want to look into the culture of gang rape with a focus on the men, not on the victims, but uh, how... how is it that a bunch of guys can rape a girl together and... Where will those guys be 10 years afterwards? And how would that, that they have done, affect their lives? Uh, so that's sort of the, the idea that I'm working on right now because I think that it's so interesting. We, we can't get anywhere in this if we always focus on the, vic the, the victim to, to see how did she end up there. We have to ask ourselves how did they end up there? these guys. So that's the question I'm, I want to ask. I think this is a really important book. I mean, one story that haunts me is a friend of mine who was raped in Guatemala. She and her friend were gang raped and they held hands, these two girls, while they were gang raped. And one of the men who raped her said, whispered into her ear, go along with it. I'm really sorry. I'm just pretending. So the, the so pressure, yes. the pressure from the other men to pretend he was raping her. Yes, that's so interesting because that's really the thing that I want to look into. Because I also found out in some of the the 
gang rape trials that I've visited that there are guys, it's like their body is saying no when they can't say no verbally to the to the friends because they don't have the power to say no because they it's sort of a gang culture when they push each other into it. And one of the cases I looked into, there was a guy, he, he peed into his condom to have something to throw away in front of his friends because he didn't know what to do. He, he he was crying and he he sort of, he hated what he did, but still he did it and he hurt her anyway, but he also hurt himself in some way. So the, the gang culture and the the picture of the, the male sexual force is something I, that I really want to well, look into more. And maybe that mirrors what we started with, the silence of the good men. Yes. Maybe the, that it... It mirrors that silence within the gang rape situation. Yes. The pressure. Well, this has been really wonderful, and I'm sure um, yes, this, I'm this so book is going to be very important. I have no doubt. Yes, I'm so happy to see you here in Sweden as well. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. You've been listening to Speaking of Stories. My name is Katarina Wenstam. And I'm Jennifer Clement. Thank you for tuning in. You can hear all of our episodes on Acast or iTunes. Also, Follow us on Instagram for pictures and updates from the show. Search for speaking underscore of underscore stories.